2: You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something.
3: This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world.
1: John Kale co-founded the Velvet Underground with Lou Reed, but he's gone on to have an impressive decades-long solo career. I'm Greg
3: Cot of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Singer, songwriter, and producer John Kale performs tracks from his new album and talks about being a music industry survivor. Then Greg and I review the new record from psychedelic rockers, Tame Impala. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
1: Let's begin again from Taylor Swift, the latest single from her fourth studio album, Red, which sold an extraordinary 1.2 million copies in a single week. Jim, in the post-Napster era, that is unprecedented for an album to sell that many copies Absolutely. in a single week. Ten years since we've hit that figure. Only the 18th time since they started keeping these figures 20 years ago that her record has topped a million in a single week. The big trend here with Taylor Swift's label is is that we're doing this the old-fashioned way. We are sifting money over to radio stations and saying, play our song. (laughs) We are sifting money over to the big retailers and saying, stock our artist. In fact, put big cardboard cutouts of her as you walk into the store. As a result, they've avoided the new streaming services that are available like Spotify, Spotify, RDo, Rhapsody. Now, this contradicts a story that we gave you a few weeks ago about the success of the new Mumford and Sons record, Babel, which sold 600,000 copies in its first week of sales, even though it was offered widely to these streaming services. Eight million times that record was streamed mm-hmm. during its first week, and yet it continued to sell at retail. The debate continues: Are these streaming services here to say Mumford and Sons would say yes? Taylor Swift said, "Not so fast." Some. Oh, something good
0: Oh, something good
3: Oh, something good tonight Make me forget about you, you know Greg, that's a song called Something Good and Something Good has indeed happened for a British band called Alt-J. They have won this year's Mercury Prize Big involvement of critics and radio tastemakers voting. Recent years, we've seen P.J. Harvey win the XX, Elbow, the Claxons. Now are these guys, who are dubbed by the Brits, Boffin Rock. Boffin is roughly equivalent to a scientific geeky nerd in English slang. And these guys sure look the part. The name of the band, Alt-J, get this, comes from the shortcut for making a delta sign on your Mac keyboard. right <laughs> right there in the name of the band. Their album, An Awesome Wave, sort of sounds uh, a little bit like the Decembrists here in the U.S., or if you think of Radiohead covering Fairport Convention, these are very nice boys. They were asked, what are you going to do with the 20,000-pound prize money you get for winning the Mercury. They said they are going to fly their parents someplace special and buy them all a very expensive dinner.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the song Nookie Wood from the new album by John Cale called Shifty Adventures in Nookie Wood. The Welsh born musician is probably best known as a founder of that famed New York City band. We talk about him a lot on Sound Opinions, The Velvet Underground. But like the co-founder, Lou Reed, he's also made quite a name for himself outside the band.
3: Yeah, on his own, Greg, John Cale has composed and performed music in any number of different genres and styles. He's never stopped moving, and he continues to innovate today. Anyone who's seen him live knows that. In fact, when he was on Sound Opinions as our very first guest on public radio, he uh, blew our minds by name-checking Snoop Dogg and the Neptunes and his beloved electronic MPC drum machine during that chat. Upon his return to our studios, we began by asking John Cale about how those hip-hop sounds produced by Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo influenced this new album.
4: Well, inspired, Phil I'm I'm jealous of those guys, you know. The envy from listening to "Drop It Like It's Hot." Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? You know, it, that that song doesn't have a genealogy. It's hmm. like where did it just landed on the earth. So, trying to get ideas out of rhythm boxes and things like that. That's that's where this one started.
3: Not an instrument we usually associate with you.
4: I'm hooked on that. It's it's the kind of thing that makes a really lazy, sexy beat. Yeah, and so anyway that that's that's what we started was on the on the room and then stacked it after that.
1: This is your home studio in los angeles I it, it
4: it became my home studio instead of working out of just a laptop, we eventually built up to having an actual board and and last December when we were ready to mix, we started mixing in in the room and and weren't sure about it, so we would make a lot of CDs, run down jump in the car, drive around the block, make sure that everything was the same but now it's pretty good i mean it's I, i'm i'm happy with it, that what we do in there is the same when it comes out and and unlike
1: some of your earlier records, it seemed like you had the luxury of of time to experiment and change things and
4: I'm really impatient in the studio though i don 't like being in it I, I mean i'm an outdoor kind of guy, and so with black acetate we got we got it down to uh ten to one in the morning then i'd run off to the gym, come back at three and then work till six and I'd, and then go from there and then try and be disciplined enough to we got to about three songs a day or three sketches a day. And with this, we had about 40 in the end after a year and a half, and went back to them. And we were supposed to be finished in December, or before December, so we could schedule a release and all that, but we got we got waylaid. And we had another three months that that, that it gave us, that really benefited us, because we, we just went back in. And instead of doing just B-sides, so now it's, it's just like going back in and writing and writing and writing, and it's, it's really done me good.
1: Well, the hip-hop aesthetic is collage style you know, fragments, and building from these fragments of sound and creating sound and song out of that. And obviously this is very different from the traditional songwriting methodology of, of pop music. Has, has that influenced the way
4: you're, you're writing songs now? Well, I, I can't speak about how they do it in hip-hop. I wish I knew I mean, there are a lot of crews around that do that. But I just get it from the records, the way the records end up. And uh, I'm guessing at how they do it, but that's where I get my info from, the guessing.
1: But you're sort of starting with the fragments and the and the loops and let's build from the ground up kind of thing?
4: Yeah, and then put, well, I like to put real drums on top. When we were making the record, we, we tried to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this on stage? Because it's important to just not have just something that sounds great on the record. And to be able to take it out live and do it live is very important and and it's more exciting mm-hmm. because people are surprised when you come out and you can actually do that yeah and uh so it's i i i'm happy the way we we we, we fought that one
3: but you know you're sitting there john on a stool next to an acoustic guitar and i think one thing that rock critics have neglected is that that you are a songwriter. You know, uh, and what drove that home for me was that wonderful Fragments of a Rainy Season record. And when you would just play some of them on acoustic guitar or the grand piano, it's like, wow. You know, I love this not just because it sounded unique or different or wonderful. I love it because it's a great song.
0: Looking for a friend Looking everywhere to go a walk down the boulevard, the boulevard of friends, all of my old men friends have got their careless, they're falling down, they're
3: falling down all over town, all over the place, it's embarrassing what I'm talking about.
4: Doing it on your own is a good test of the song.
3: Why don't we Why don't we hear one of the tunes? I know that, that you're going to use that acoustic guitar. Tell us what it is and and where it fits in on on the new album.
4: This is not a song from the album. This is mm. uh, catastrophic. It's from the EP. Oh, ah, yeah. so.
0: And, tropic, and it shows Gonna pick you up Help you up Stand you up Jump and shout You can't take it with you When you go For the time being you got nothing to show Oh 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 You're pining at me With your magic wand you pin me down like you did James Bond But you don't live here no more You've gone away Say hello to the future The in the past Hurry up to the present And get the past oh, 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 oh. I ain't got nothing to say I ain't got nothing to prove
1: John Kale with a song called Catastrophic on Sound Opinions from the 2011 EP Extra Playful, the band Dustin Boyer on guitar, Joey Maramba on bass, Alex Thomas on drums. John, where does that EP fit into the genesis of the new album?
4: They were pretty far apart. And the album, I just needed more uh, adventurous rhythm bass on everything. I wanted to get funkier, basically. Mm-hmm. But really it was... when you start an album you don't know where you're going and you just sort of write and write and write and write and every morning it was like let's do another one, let's do another one and sometimes you look back and say I know how to finish this so I'm kind of good at cutting it off when it, I I know at certain point two o'clock in the afternoon I'm not going to get very far with this song today so let's move on to something else but I try and keep it very simple, I mean I try and make it so that we can go out and perform it live and and make it sound like the record.
1: Yeah, that's got to be a little bit more of a challenge with the record you just made, Shifty Adventures and Nookie Wood. I, I would imagine some of your fans have probably who haven't been paying attention, maybe for to contemporary music, are thinking, what is this, what is this effect he's using on his voice?
4: Oh, the, the
1: auto tune, all these glitchy textures that are in there. To my mind, hip hop and R&B production is so far ahead of where rock production is agreed, right now agreed is that where you were coming yeah, from like it's totally. kind of boring out there no <laughs> i
4: mean i i spoke to somebody who's an engineer for dre and he, he told me that um everything when he plays back he plays everything back at 100, 100 or 120 db I and mean, it's it's impossible to be in there for very long because <laughs> you're, you're, you're in size though, probably but there's something about i mean that way of working where you're really physically involved with the music and I don't work at that level, but it's really what what drives the song. It's it's like those 808s that are in there. Mm-hmm.
3: Not a new idea. I no. mean, I remember hearing this story. What was the name of that band? I, I don't know. I forget. Some band from New York, a European son <laughs> involved pushing a table through a window or something, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Visceral. I want you to feel this. Yeah. I want to punish you.
4: No, I think that was more of a psychological kind of feeling. I mean... Trying to really mess with people's heads,
1: you know. Obviously, there was a lot more license to me in that era that w- when you were coming up, where you could experiment with the live form. And you know, when people said, "Oh, it's supposed to be scary and dangerous," well, it really was sort of scary and dangerous. And you, you didn't know what was going to happen. You went to a suicide show it's CBGB. You didn't know if you were going to be assaulted. Some of the velvet stories that I've heard will, you know, would uh, straighten my hair. You know, yeah, t- t-
4: yeah. It's the uh, pastures new. It's really uncharted territory when you take an audience there. You know, audiences are great because that's what they're looking for, kind of. Mm. You know, they they want to be brought up and into into a different experience. Well, we were, the first tour I did of France was after everybody discovered that there was a rock and roll audience in France, mm-hmm. and Pink Floyd had sold six million records. They said, what? <laughs> you mean they have rock and roll? So we did a tour of the Palais des Spores in France, which we brought to stage with us, and... Uh, It was was a really a cyclodrome, really, Mm -hmm. and and they put the stage up and they had B-Fart and Hosebisa and Kevin Coyne and all these one after the other. Totally disorganized. But the kids that showed up, they were sitting there from like 6.30 in the evening till 2 o'clock in the morning on the concrete. And they were all there just like agog, you know, watching what was going on and waiting. And and some of the bands, you know, it would be like an hour late going on. But as soon as you see that, you know, that really... It really gives you hope.
0: You want to call Want to call me
1: Coming up, more conversation and performance from John Cale. Then, later in the show, Jim and I will review the new album by Australian rocker's Tame Impala, and Jim's going to drop a quarter into the Desert Island Jukebox. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
0: You call me? Entered the city on the night I felt that something was
4: wrong Buildings were empty, lights were on And we were
0: running lost I heard you whisper in my ear
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis and that's a new song by John Cale called I Want to Talk to You. It's from Cale's latest album, Shifty Adventures in Nookie Wood, and was produced by Danger Mouse. Now, John Cale himself is a pretty good producer. I mean, his credits include the debut by The Stooges and Horses by Patti Smith, two masterpieces. And if there's a style or running thread through his work, it's his ability to adapt and adopt new styles at every turn. He's always taking chances. So it's perhaps no surprise that he turned to someone like Danger Mouse for one of the album's key tracks. Let's return to our conversation with John Kale there. We wondered how the two linked up.
4: He was producing shortwave set who were coming in from England and he asked me if I'd help him. Wrong. And before they they went into the studio and did the thing he and I spent about forty-eight hours messing around in the studio to see what would happen. hmm and we came out of there with about three roughs, and then, as it happened in December, I was I had to revamp the the album. And what I hadn't managed to get on the album was something with a Detroit feel on it. And I remember this track, so I called him up and said, "Hey, you want to make a deal to me finish this?" And I got the tracks back, and he's kind of a one-man man, too. He plays the drums and bass, and you know, it's and it's very sweet. It's a genteel kind of feel on, on on the track but so uh, it was it was interesting what had happened because some of the things that I'd when we were doing it you know I'd try some ideas saying that's not good that's not good I can that and but he'd taken some of them and, and put them in a different part of the song and made them interesting aspects of, of bridges or whatever so we finished it and uh, added some more stuff and but it's it's a style that's very different from the rest of the album, which is why it's at the top of the album.
3: Mm-hmm. What do you make of him as a producer, John? I mean, if we, you know, Greg and I have, have reviewed so many records he's had a hand on in the last five years. H- how were your production approaches similar or different?
4: No, it, it's really when we have little time. I mean, what I'm, impre- what I'm impressed by was the speed. If you're working in that system and you're trying to come up with lyrics and vocals or whatever, the speed at which you can move on and try different things is really important, and he was he was very fast. Hmm. Uh, but you know, I think what's admirable about him is he's been, he's really done what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these different things. I mean, that's
0: that's all parts of him.
4: Yeah, and and taking that, those things that I said no, I wasn't so happy with and putting them back in a different way. Mm. I mean, that, that's the kind of philosophy where every expression of the person is really important for the creative process. Mm. And you try and put in as much of that person as you can into it.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with my partner, Jim Dirigatis and we're here in the studio with John Cale. John, uh, how about another song?
4: Yeah, coming right up.
3: Face to the Sky by John Cale on Sound Opinions. We are here in the Jim and Kay Maybe studio with John Cale and the band. I love that song from the first time I heard it, John, and it's phenomenal to hear you do it live. Now, there are cues there. There are some Kale familiarities, you know? We've heard guitar solos like that in the past, and we've heard the keyboard thing at the end where it starts to get, like, fear or guts kind of going crazy— Yet it, it sounds completely fresh and new because of the context. And, and it's not you cannibalizing yourself. It's more like, this is John Cale, 2013.
4: Yeah, that was the aim. I mean, I don't like to do things twice. I don't like to start in the same place for a song. So trying, whenever you finish something, you try and find another groove, another mood, another rhythm, something that, that takes you somewhere else. And then you'll get, you know, if you can live with that stone in your shoe for a little bit, you get another idea.
1: You, you talked about this uh, this whole idea of the blank slate. You know, we, we talked about the live performance. It's being a surprise. You talked about recruiting the band, and you're bringing them into an environment where, you know, you may, you're not 100% sure wh- where this is going to end up. And I'm struck by how you brought that sort of sensibility, a uh, risk-taking, uh, to these blank slates, you know, these, these records that you're associated with as a producer, you know, the, the first Stooges record, the first Patti Smith record, the Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers, for three really notable examples. Nobody really knew what those bands were going to be when they came into the studio. Is that, what, is that why you were attracted to? Is that, is that why you took that job?
4: Um, not really. No, first of all, you look and you see something that's never going to go away. It's just like there's this diamond in the middle of it It's that's just going to be there always. Mm-hmm. And then you you look at the live performance, and you both Patty and Iggy. What you had was a, an explosive presence on stage. And seeing Iggy, you know, you wonder, how are you going to bring that on a record? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an irrelevant question, in a way, because you only have 10 days to make the record. So you have uh, six there you do the tracks and four mix. And and really, they were very professional. They weren't they weren't messy at all. They were very together. But Iggy told me,
1: too, that you had a big role in that record. And I'm not sure if he got this right, but you, I'm going to run it by you. He said that we really didn't have any songs until John sort of told us to write some.
4: <laughs> really? <laughs> Listen, I, I, when I got in the studio, the biggest surprise for me was he walked in just as we st- the second day or whatever, and give me a huge sheaf of papers. Uh-huh. I said, "What's that?" He said, "They're the lyrics." Uh-huh. So he—that's the thing about it. people like Iggy and Patty, is that well, when 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 the time is up, they produce. Mm-hmm. And it's and same with Jonathan. I mean, you like to improvise all the time, but with Patty, if you if you put her to improvise with her own poetry, that was something that I thought was really interesting to to have, and she enjoyed it.
1: Well, and also the double-tracking of the poetry, I thought was yeah, that's uh, what I mean. an amazing
3: touch yeah. on that record. I mean, improvising against herself, as hair. you've said.
0: I put my fingers through his silken hair And found a stare And I don't waste time, I just walk right up And saw that up there There is a sea up thing. there There is a sea well, up there There's a sea, he sees the possibility there's no land up there. but the land there's it's no sea but the sea of possibilities no up, 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 up there the there's a wall Except of, one of possibilities possibilities up one there possibilities. there are several walls oh, possibilities. of possibilities oh, I up I there, the first there possibilities.
2: Was that your idea
1: or was that yeah. hers? How'd that work out?
4: No, I thought it was there, there, there was some poetry there, but I thought it was it was a stretch in the song, and I thought, no, this is a perfect stretch where she can have many personalities. Mm-hmm. Instead of having a guitar solo going on behind her, have her do a solo behind her.
1: And she wasn't precious about, hey, wait a minute, you can't hear all the words, or they're conflicting with each other. It was she was was she excited about it when when you did that?
4: Yeah, I made her sit down and mix it. Mm-hmm. So well, she was the one sitting there. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's cool. You know, she perhaps got the notice right away like the Stooges now I think you see now you know 40 years on people really got it. it it took that long almost to like oh yeah this was in a very very important band you know and maybe at the time wasn't quite as appreciated
4: well there's I, I, there's a lot of innocence there and I, I love that I mean they, they, when I saw them they were playing in front of MC5 and the MC5 sort of reminded me of a Nuremberg rally <laughs> and the Stooges came out and they were like you know
0: sunshine no fun for my babe no fun no fun my babe no fun no fun to hang around feeling that same old way no fun Another day.
3: One other thing that both Iggy and Patty had is that, that there was a certain am- amount of self mythologizing going on. So, you know, for, for Iggy, and you were going to write a book with him, for him to have told you, you know, I had no songs, right? And here he was, but, you know, the James part of Iggy had sat, and down, sat down and written these lyrics out and was yeah. very studious about it and rehearsed them, right? You know, and Patty, of course, always is playing with, with symbolism and persona and such. You know, John. It seems like uh, throughout your entire solo career, you've been going the exact opposite direction about demythologizing. I am what I am.
4: I, I don't know what else I can be. I mean, it, you know, I do what I. It's, it's my job. I mean, I'm a musician, so I'm. I'm just having fun doing it. It's interesting you
1: say that, though, because the vocabulary is not exhausted for you. Um, no, in terms of what can be done. With Either these, in with the these lyrical tools.
4: vocabulary or the musical one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are lots. There's so many young kids and bands out there that still approach these things. They don't have the slickness of Jay Z or, or the, you know, the the studio chops. Mm-hmm. But what they do on their own is very simple and very and, and special to them. Mm-hmm. And it really, that like getting their personality expressed like that is very important.
1: Mm-hmm. The curiosity has been a driving force for you, it seems, all along. It's, uh, and, you know, I hesitate to ask you to even comment on this, but, you know, it does seem that at a certain period of time, most artists lose that, where they're not really that curious about, you know, new forms and adapting to what, what's out there, you know, culturally. It seems like you've always been sort of uh, yeah, driven ca- by that.
4: That's probably a hangover from my mother trying to <laughs> tell me, you know, the stuff out there you don't know, so you better know it.
3: Hmm, a teacher. She was a teacher. Exactly. Yeah.
4: So that's that's crawling into everything.
3: Can you guys give us another song? Uh, this is December Rain. What, what made you sit down and write December Rains?
4: It's. It was a combination of things. It just came out that at that particular time, I I, uh, I was trying to figure out how to make some comment without being heavy-handed about it, and I had a really nice hook, and I thought maybe I can do this gently and. and People will get it that this is – these are – you better pay attention to what's going on around you. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll take it away from you. Mm. So this is December Reigns.
1: December Rains from uh, John Kale and his band. Uh, the new album is called Shifty Adventures in Nookie Wood. John with uh, Dustin Boyer, Joey Maramba, and Alex Thomas on Sound Opinions.
3: What a pleasure having John Kale on Sound Opinions. John, thanks for being on the show.
4: Thank you very much.
1: We want to hear from you. Leave us a comment about anything in the rock world for us to air on the show. Call 888-859-1800. Coming up after a short break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, the latest from psychedelic rock band Tame Impala.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a band from Australia called Tame Impala with the song Elephant from their second proper album, Lonerism. Greg, there's not a lot of story to tell about these kids, and I mean kids. Kevin Parker, the guitarist vocalist, and Dominic Simper, the bassist, formed this band in Perth in 1999 when they were only 13 years old. My God, the 60s was like half a century before them, but they were very much inspired by the psychedelic rock sounds of the mid-60s into the early 70s. They, like a lot of other groups we've mentioned, started out on MySpace, floating their music for free, bedroom demos recorded at home, and it became a sensation resulting in an Australian bidding war for them to release their music. When they finally put out a proper album, got rave reviews in the underground alternative press, Inner Speaker came out in 2010. It was mixed by Dave Fridman, producer for The Flaming Lips and a former member of Mercury Rev., They recorded the second album, Lonerism, again starting at home and then bringing it to Fridman in upstate New York to mix. What kind of music are they giving us this time around? Let's hear a song and we'll come back and rate it on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. This is Be Above It by Tame Impala on Sound Opinions.
1: Be Above It from the new Tame Impala album, Lonerism. When Kevin Parker goes into the studio, he does a lot of this stuff by himself, Jim. I mean, he's kind of a one-man band in that studio. The band obviously performs as a full four-piece out on the road, but it's really Parker's baby in the studio. And his co-conspirator on these two Tame Impala albums has been Dave Fridman. I mean, there's a level of meticulousness and obsessiveness about these mixes that is above and beyond. I mean, he didn't just mix this album once with Fridman. He went back to Buffalo, all the way from Perth, to mix it again because he wasn't hearing exactly what he wanted to get on this record. So you've got this incredible attention to sonic detail combined with these songs about, as the album says, lonerism. this guy who does not fit in, an outcast in society. Now, these songs could be solipsistic, you know, this brooding guy alone, by himself, Uh, mourning the fact that he doesn't fit in with the world. That that would be the
3: Smashing Pumpkins.
1: Well, but the songs are so beautiful and layered and uplifting in a way that they disguise this fact. So there's a bittersweetness at the core of these records, and I think you would appreciate it, Jim, because there's that same element of these explosive pop songs with the sort of undercurrent of melancholy that the Flaming Lips have, a band that Fridman has worked extensively uh, throughout his career. So it's no mistake that Parker hooked up with Fridman to mix this record. I love this record. This is a buy-it
3: record for me. Well, absolutely. It's definitely a buy-it record, Greg. I have to almost check my biases being such a fan of Fridman's work, being such a fan of this genre. The thing I always say about psychedelic rock is there's two pieces there. It is fine to have that goal of spiritual transcendence to taking the listener to another world that exists only between the headphones. The reason I played that song, Be Above It, is the lyric repeating over and over again, know that i got to be above it now. You know, it's all about that journey toward the white light. (laughs) Take me somewhere better. But you can't neglect the second half of the equation, the rock and roll. This album rocks, it kicks hard, and it never skimps on the melody. In fact... Parker said my goal was twofold for this record I wanted to make a really messed up record Sonic Wonderland but I wanted it to be as catchy as Britney Spears I think he succeeded these are wonderful pop songs a very enthusiastic double buy it
0: I tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched Remember, we were shipwrecked together.
1: As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island Jukebox and put a quarter in it to play a record we cannot live without. This week, it is Jim Dirigatis' turn. Jim, what do you got for us?
3: Well, Greg, I'm putting on my scuba gear. I'm going to swim out there right now. As you know, I teach reviewing the arts, among a few other classes at Columbia College, and we watch Almost Famous because it remains, as far as I know, the only motion picture about a critic. It opens with a great song, the song called The Ogum Bogum Song, which is a 1967 hit. And my kids, when we played it this time, just, it blew their minds. They, they loved this song. And they asked me about it. And I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know where Cameron Crowe had gotten that. This was I want to say a one-hit wonder, but the artist actually had two hits, 67, 68, and basically never was heard from again. The "Ogum Boogum Song was released in 67 by an artist named Brenton Wood. After moving around a lot in his youth, he wound up growing up in Compton, of all places. You know, the equal parts gospel, a big fondness for Sam Cooke, and just a really silly streak. The wonderful thing about the "Ogum Boogum Song is it's in that great lineage of rock meaning Songs from, you know, a wop pop a loop-op uh, with Little Richard to imbop by Hanson. Ogum, Ogum, Boogum, Boogum. Boogum Now, baby, you're casting your spell on me. You know, a little bit of Scream Jay Hawkins there, too. You know, the voodoo thing. He had been born in Louisiana before winding up in Compton with his folks. The following year he released another good song called Gimme Little Sign. Ogum Boogum song was also covered by Alex Chilton. Gimme a Little Sign was covered by Ricky Nelson. Both of those versions are probably better known than Brenton Wood. Anyway, this is a, a great lost gem, rediscovered by Cameron Crow. I'm paying a little homage to it now. The Ogum Boogum song by Brenton Wood on Sound Opinions.
0: One, two, one, two, three. Oogham, 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 Oogham now, baby, y'all can-
3: That was Brenton Wood with the 1967 hit, the Oogum Bogum song, My Desert Island Jukebox Pick for the Week. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
1: Jim, next week, just in time for Thanksgiving, we
3: have the most disappointing albums of the year, the annual Sound Opinions turkey shoot. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. John Cale was recorded by Mary Gaffney. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Our assistant producer is Annie Minoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. he has already bought four copies of the Taylor Swift album himself.
0: You never come on the telephone.
1: You never on the telephone. On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Michelle, transistor sister, Castro, in San Francisco. I want to tell you that I enjoyed
0: your Halloween episode. I really like to beware of the blob. That's a really funny song. Here's another one, Um, it's by the band The Turtles, and it's called Grim Reaper of Love. Remover of Love Strikes Again, Killing the Living and Living to
2: Kill. Thanks a lot. Love your show. Hey, what's up, Jim and Greg? It's Elia from the Scotland Yard Gospel Choir calling. Sound Opinion alums. Listen, I just had a a two-and-a-half-hour commute because of Hurricane Sandy rerouting from uh, way up in Manhattan down to where I live in Brooklyn. Luckily, I had my iPod, and I listened to... uh, Episode from April 13th, 2009.
1: We are talking about rock as literature, literature as rock, the idea that lyric writing can be poetic.
2: And I just want to say that episode is fantastic. I wish you guys would do another one. Reminded me of so many conversations and debates we've had on tour. Anyway, thinking of you, hope everything's all right in Chicago. Talk to you soon. And if something went right, then I was never involved. Craig, Jim, it's Vic from Colorado Springs. I just want to share with you my Jim Brown story or James Brown story. I was in the Army Station at Fort Gordon, Georgia, in the mid-'80s, and I was always a rocker when I was a kid growing up. I was in the barracks over a weekend. My buddies kept coming to me and saying, Hey, did you know Jim Brown is going to be down at Barton Field, which is a big field at Fort Gordon? let's go see him and i was blown away because i was like jim brown or james brown is not coming to fort gordon at all to play here And i didn't know that he was from augusta he didn't live far from the base he used to show up just out of nowhere and his band and his entourage would just show up throw up the stage and they would just perform right on barton field at fort gordon i thought it was fantastic i was such a fan of james brown after that that i still am today I think he's one of the greatest performers I've ever seen. Thank you. Miami, North Carolina. I just got through listening to your great uh, musical dissection of Live at the Apollo. Uh, you know, what an amazing record that is. I did, though, want to offer just maybe a kind of an addendum to your look at the record. I was a little surprised that I didn't hear any mention of Winston Salem's own uh, soul heroes, the Five Royals. Come
0: on, baby. Think. 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 About the good things. Think. Not only
2: was one of the best songs on uh, a lot of the Apollo, a Royals cover, which is Pink, but uh, really more important, kind of historically, is that when James Brown went to put together the famous Flames, he was very explicitly trying to basically recreate the sound of the five Royals. You know, if you guys ever do a a show on sort of obscure bands that are historically important, but maybe don't get their due, I'd like to throw out uh, the five Royals as a good starting point.